All right, good morning. Good to see you this morning. It's always a good sign when we have, I don't quite know if my mic's coming through. Um, there we go. Good sign when we have children leaving, even though that's, uh, you know, trying to be quiet. And, uh, and that's good. Have first kids worship for them if they like. And then if they want to stay here and listen to the old boring pastor, they can do that too, right? Anyhow. So, uh, well, there's a story of a boy that went with his mother to an old general store. And he liked to, to sneak away from his mother when no one was there. And it, when no one was looking, he would dip his finger into this large barrel of molasses. And the storekeeper called him doing it one time, and he decided to teach the boy a lesson. So he picked up the boy by his britches and dunked him head first into the barrel of molasses. Believe you did that? That would never happen nowadays, but it did back in the day, right? And put him up and set him out on the front porch of the store to teach him a lesson. But instead of crying, the boy was sitting there praying. And he said, God, give me the tongue to equal this opportunity. <laughs> Mark Twain says that there was a very cautious man who never laughed, or, never laughed or, or played. He never risked, he never tried, he never sang or prayed. And when he one day passed away, his insurance was denied. For since he never really lived, they claimed he never died. <laughs> a sad story. We're talking today about opportunity as we continue to go through the book of Nehemiah. We started the last week talking about opportunity today, and as we're going to see in Nehemiah's life, he had an opportunity to do big things for God's kingdom, and as we start emerging in the weeks and months ahead from the pandemic and things start to return to some level of normalcy, hopefully here in the next couple of months, we have a great opportunity here as a church to reach the people that live around us. I, I, I said last year, or last week, that for the first time in 80 years, less than half of Americans uh, or consider themselves a member of some religious institution, less than half. And as you know, if you live in this area, there are people all around moving in from all sorts of part of the world and the country, and we can't assume, we need to assume they don't know Jesus. We need to assume they don't, and if they do, fantastic. But we are in a great position as a church, a great opportunity to, to make disciples, to reach people with the gospel. So that's what this, this series is about, Rebuild, and we're in Nehemiah chapter 2, Starting in verse 1. It says, In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine, and I gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my people, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy? And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Heavenly Father, as we continue to worship today, we recognize that every success we have, every good and gracious gift you give us is because your good hand is upon us. So, Lord, as we look at this passage today about Nehemiah seizing his opportunity to do good for your kingdom, 
that we would also see where you have divinely put us and placed us to where we also, when opportunity asks, we can give an answer. When we see the opportunity that we can be opportunistic. But Father, I pray that you speak through me today. You fill me with your spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I want to give you three truths about opportunities. Three truths about opportunities when it comes to God's kingdom or when it comes to anything in life. Three truths. Number one, opportunities come very often when we display consistency. Number one, opportunities come uh, when we display consistency. Look at verse one. He's talk, he says the month of Nisan. Now, unless you are a, a, a Persian scholar, you don't know when this is. It is about four months since Nehemiah had heard the news about the condition of the people living in Jerusalem. This is the new year they were celebrating. So it had been about four months that Nehemiah had heard about the, how Jerusalem, how the people there were suffering, how the wall was torn down, and he just had cried over it. He was very exasperated over it. He had spent four months mourning and praying and fasting over the condition of the people living there. And it had been about 13 years since Ezra had led some exiles back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, but it, it, the rebuilding had been stopped, and they were all despondent, and it was in ruins, and the people were destitute. And it says that in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So for 20 years, Nehemiah had dutifully served the king of Persia as his cupbearer, as his wine tester. This is very important because the king wanted to stay alive, of course. And there's always somebody coming after the king. This king himself had actually killed rivals and things like that. And so people were always trying to poison the king. And so the, the cupbearer, the wine taster, was a very trusted ally. And for 20 years, Nehemiah had done this. He controlled what came into the palace, what came into dinner, all these kind of things. And it says that, that when the wine was before him, that he took up the wine and he gave it to him and he had not been sad in his presence. Many ways, he was this right-hand man of the king. And based on details given throughout this text, the king was likely celebrating the new year. There had been a party and now the king was sitting down to feast and Nehemiah gave him his wine. And he notes that he'd never been sad in his presence. For 20 years. Now maybe when he had been sad in the, in the past, maybe he had hit it. Or maybe he had not been around him in four months and now he had really been around him. And he could not hide his sadness. Have you ever picked up on that before? You know someone really well and then, and then they just, something seems off. And you know it, right? This is how it was. Verse 2. And the king said to me, why is your face sad seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. Now, why was Nehemiah afraid that the king had noticed his sadness? Well, to put it bluntly, the king was unpredictable. He had a reputation for shedding blood of those political opponents who vied for the throne. And if you think about the king, when one of your most trusted advisors was not in a good place mentally, this is someone whose task was to keep you alive, and they were not in a good place mentally, it would give you cause for concern. Nehemiah needed to be on his game at all times. And so 
he wasn't sure how the king would deal with this, when he would see this weakness. If he can't keep his head straight, then why do I have a cupbearer, a wine taster, who's supposed to keep me alive? That's not a good thing. So he was worried that he'd be executed or who knows what would happen. So he feared. But for 20 years, Nehemiah was predictable. Nehemiah was consistent. Every morning he woke up, he did his job, and he did it well. If he didn't do it well, he would not have continued to be the king's cupbearer or the wine taster. So for 20 years he did what God had called him to do, and he did his job. And he had earned the king's trust. So when something was off, the king took notice. And we'll see that he was genuinely concerned for Nehemiah. And so before we get into what happens next, it's important to point out that one of the main reasons the king would listen to Nehemiah at all was because of the trustworthy, consistent presence that Nehemiah was in his life. Nehemiah had a very great, awesome job that most people would like to have, but it was a dangerous one. And it, he obviously took it seriously, and he could be trusted. In his autobiography, Billy Graham tells about a conversation that he had with former President John F. Kennedy shortly after he was elected. Billy Graham had incredible access to past presidents, and he'd had it before even JFK as well. God had given him great opportunities to, to be in the ear of these presidents. And he says that on the way back to the Kennedy house, the president-elect at the time stopped the car and turned to me and said, Billy, do you believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ? And Reverend Graham said, I most certainly do. And, and JFK says, well, does my church believe it? And, uh, and, and Reverend Graham said, well, they have it in their creeds. <laughs> and he said, uh, JFK said, they don't preach it. They don't tell us much about it. I'd like to know what you think. So Reverend Graham said he then explained what the Bible said about Christ coming the first time. Explained about Christ dying on the cross, rising from the dead, just like we sang today. Then promising that he would come back again. And Reverend Graham said, only then are we going to have permanent world peace. And President-elect Kennedy said, very interesting. And he looked away and he said, we'll have to talk more about that someday. And he drove on. As we look to rebuild a facet of our lives or rebuild the church or whatever it is we're rebuilding that God has called us to, it's important to note that rebuilding is easier when we've been consistent. It's easier when we've been trustworthy. If you're looking to share Christ with someone you know or invite them to church, have you consistently been someone they can trust? They will take your, your message that much more seriously. If you randomly share Christ with someone, they may or may not receive it. We don't know what they would say, but they may not take you seriously if you don't. But if you know them and they know what you're about and they can tell that you genuinely care about them, you have a much higher chance of them caring and listening to you. you people that have friends for 10, 15, 20 years, 30 years that you've known all your life and and, and they know that you're, you're a Christian and they know that you attend here or whatever it is, no matter what they think about you, if you have a good relationship with them and, and you trust them and they trust you, if you share the gospel with them, they will be receptive. You might not think because you know them so well, but they will be at least receptive. You may not know what, you're never going to know what they're going to say. But God has put you in that position and that opportunity to have it. When opportun whatever opportunity you're looking for in your life, if you've been consistently following Jesus, there will be doors open to you that wouldn't have been if you had not been consistent. 
Nehemiah would have never had this, this chance this, to go back and rebuild these walls if he had not always done his job and been there for the king. Opportunities come when we display consistency. Secondly, opportunities come when we display courage. They come when we display courage. Look at verse 3. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? After giving him a respectful greeting, Nehemiah explains his sadness. Again, the, the, the nation of Judah and Israel as well had been, had been uh, destroyed by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. Now the Persians were running the area. And I want to underscore here the importance of speaking to those who don't know Jesus in a respectful manner. You know, if you're rude to someone and share them the gospel, they're probably not going to receive it. <laughs> right? If you're disrespectful to someone and then you tell them about Jesus, they might not listen as well. But Nehemiah was always respectful to the king, and he had his ear and he respectfully said, let the king live forever. And then he then tells him his problem. No one is going to turn to Jesus because of our rudeness. It's not why. They, they'll, they'll turn to it despite of our rudeness, but not because of it. Nehemiah is respectful, and he gives them two reasons why he's sad. Number one, he says this, that his ancestral home's gates had been burned down, which had happened uh, when they were destroyed years ago. And that his ancestors' graves are in ruins. Now, there's several things to mention here. First, Nehemiah does not mention the name of his town. And I think it's by design. Artaxerxes had gotten some complaints earlier about the Jews trying to rebuild Jerusalem. And someone said, look, they're trying to rise up against you. So he had set a decree that said you cannot rebuild Jerusalem's walls anymore. And a king couldn't just, couldn't just uh, eliminate the decree. In fact, the Bible's filled with instances where a king will decree something and then regret it, but it had to be done. So in, in, in courage and wisdom, Nehemiah kind of works the system here. And he just says his hometown's in ruins. He doesn't say Jerusalem, you know, the place that you forbid anybody to go to. He didn't say that. He says my hometown's in ruins. Nehemiah knows that, he, that he's not supposed to go back there. Courage many times and it, it requires us to be smart. Secondly, the Persian culture had the highest respect for the ancestral tombs. Uh, the, the, some of their tombs were even more magnificent. They weren't pyramids, but more magnificent than some of the Egyptian king's tombs. They put a lot of, uh, of worship into these tombs. Some were worshipped as gods. So it was, it was something in their culture that was a high priority. So for him to hear that, he started thinking about his own tomb, his own family's tombs. He started thinking, man, this is a bad situation. He felt bad for Nehemiah. Nehemiah knew that Artaxerxes would be bothered by this fact. So in his courage, he asks this. Verse 4. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? Now, Nehemiah knows exactly what he wants. He's had four months to wait for this opportunity, to pray about it, to think about it. So he knew if he ever got an opportunity, he knew exactly what he wanted to ask. Look what he says. What are you requesting? Now, how many of you would have been like, well, let me tell you, I got my list right here. You, you know, I've been writing this down for months. What does he say? He prayed to the God of heaven. 
Can you imagine being right there in front of the king and the king asks you, what do you want and what do you do? You do this. Now, he might not have given him another chance if he didn't speak quick enough. He prayed. You know why he prayed? Because his king, his God, is much more powerful than Artaxerxes was. And ultimately, this was in the hands of God, not the king. And Nehemiah knew that. So he makes a short prayer. And even when the king asks him a a direct question, what do you want, what do you need, he still goes to the Lord in prayer. Verse 5, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Again, he doesn't mention Jerusalem, but he says Judah. And he mentions the graves again, and he requests that he can help in the rebuilding project. Verse 6. And the king said to me, and the queen sitting beside him, and they mentioned the queen because it's a way of letting them know they're at a, a meal together, probably a party, at a meal after the New Year's party. And he says this, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Now, Nehemiah doesn't tell us how much he told him. never tells us what he asked for. We don't know if he asked for six months, a year, two years, three years. It was probably fairly short. I mean, we can guess because obviously if you ask for a shorter time, it's probably a better chance you get that than if you ask for a longer time. This was his trusted advisor. He did not want to lose, lose him. This man was keeping him alive in many ways. But we know that Nehemiah was there for at least 12 years. If we only made requests, if we knew the answer beforehand, it's not being courageous. Courage is asking, it's acting, even when we don't know the response, even when we don't know the outcome. And opportunities come when we display courage. He was asked a question. He didn't say, well, you know, I don't want to bother you, you're busy. He prayed, and he's very specific. He said, I need to go home and rebuild this city. That's my request. He was willing to die for it if he had to. Opportunities come when we display courage. And finally, number three, opportunities come when we display boldness. You know, it's one thing to be courageous, right? Like it would take courage maybe for me to jump from this step down to the floor. That's courageous. But it would take boldness for me to jump off the balcony to the floor, wouldn't it? (laughs) That would be bold. That wouldn't be courageous. That would be bold, okay? And so there's some opportunities that are courageous, and there's some you're like, wow, now that is bold. And we see Nehemiah, after getting his first question answered, be even bolder. Look what he says in verse 7. He wasn't done talking. He says this. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph the keeper of the king's forest that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple for the wall of the city and the house that I shall occupy. Israel still had enemies. The enemies told on them in the first place. That's why there there was the decree to say they couldn't rebuild it. These enemies did not want to see Nehemiah and a bunch of soldiers from Persia marching down to Jerusalem to rebuild this city. So he said, I need safe passage. It's one thing to let me go, but I I need your troops. In fact, if you look over to the next section, it says that he gave them officers and army and horsemen and all these things that he gave them. He said, I need safe passage. 
And not only that, I want to go into your forest that you own, and I want your timber. I'm going to rebuild the walls of my city with your wood. You, who destroyed the destroyers of the destroyers who destroyed our country, I'm going to use your timber. Now, that's bold. It's one thing to, to let me go and live. It's secondly to give me safe passage and to give me your assets. We're going to rebuild this city in many ways in the name of the king of Persia. And not only does it, he gives him the soldiers and he gives him the supplies to rebuild. Sometimes we have to be not only courageous, but bold when God gives us opportunities. Bold. Maybe things that may even seem silly, may seem unwise. I look at courage as being something where we have to stand up and be courageous. I look at boldness as almost being on the offensive sometimes. This is what he's doing. He's, he's not just standing up to the king. He's, he's going on the offense. And look what he says. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Let's never forget that when we have success in life, it's because God's hand has been upon us. God's hand. Especially when it comes to the kingdom of God. We have success. It's God's hand. Nehemiah had been put there. He didn't apply that we know of for this job. Or we don't know how he got there. But he was put there ultimately by God. And he had this opportunity and God used him. And there's people in your life that you come across on a daily basis where God has put you in your life that you're the only person that is able to possibly reach them for Jesus. You might be the only Christian they know. You might be the only person that have the access that you do in their life to where they will actually listen to you when you speak to them about the kingdom of God. We don't need to forget that when we ask for God's will, he gives it. And God's hand was upon him. And we can not only be courageous, we can not only be bold as we seek to rebuild, but we can even be bold because we have Jesus who is our intercessor. Look at Romans 8, 34. Paul says this. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. God sent his son, Jesus, who lived the life we couldn't live. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross. He took our death, our punishment on the cross. God poured his wrath upon him. Easter Sunday, he rose from the grave victorious, which we celebrated two weeks ago. He then ascended to heaven where he sits now at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. Every prayer we give to God is answered because it goes through Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says. Jesus makes your prayers work because of what he's done. That's what it means to be an intercessor. We can be bold because we have our Lord and Savior at the right hand of the Father doing these things for us. Verse Romans 8.38 says this. For I am sure... That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We know the King is coming back. And we know that we are living on borrowed time as a New Testament church. 
And so we don't have to fear anything. Except maybe fearing the fact that we missed an opportunity when God gave us one. Several years after the conversation JFK and Billy Graham had that I mentioned earlier, the two met again at the 1963 National Prayer Breakfast. Reverend Graham says he remembers that he had the flu. Can you imagine? I guess you can. We can't. If anything we can imagine through this year, this was like to have the flu. He says, after I gave my short talk and he gave his, we walked out of the hotel to his car together as we always did. And he got to the curb and he turned to me. He said, Billy, could you ride back to the White House with me? I'd like to see you for a minute. And Reverend Graham said, Mr. President, I've got a fever. Not only am I weak, but I don't want to give you this flu. Couldn't we wait and talk some other time? And it was a cold, snowy day, and he said he was freezing as he stood there with his overcoat. And you know how it is. You're out of town. You're in a hotel. You've, you have this prayer in front of all these people and, and everything, and you're drained, and you're sick. You just want to go back to the hotel and sleep. And you've you got to feel pretty bad for the president to ask you back, and he say no. you got to feel really bad, right? And he said, would you mind if I take a rain check? And, and President Kennedy said, of course. But the two would never meet again. Later that year, as you know, President Kennedy was assassinated. And Billy Graham doesn't say whether or not, if he knew he was saved or not. He's not casting any dispersions on his salvation. He just says this. His hesitation at the car door and his request haunt me still. What was on his mind? Should I have gone with him? It was an irrecoverable moment. Think about all the millions of people Billy Graham has led to Christ. And he had this opportunity. And he didn't take it. And every night he would think about that. He put it in his book. Never know what tomorrow brings. Who would have, who would have ever guessed what would have happened to President Kennedy? No one would have ever guessed that. When opportunity asks, we're called to answer. Many times God will put us in the place he wants us to be and he'll give us opportunity. It might not be the best situation for us. We might not even feel like it. But it is where he wants us to be. You know, last week I got up here and mentioned I had a dream, which I never had a dream of me preaching. I talked about how I remembered, remembered sitting on the pew and I had, this, I had another dream last night. Did you know that? Another dream last night. A week apart. And I woke up this morning, and I couldn't believe it. And it was a dream of this sanctuary, slam-packed. People sitting shoulder to shoulder. Every pew was filled, and I was uncomfortable. And I remember thinking, I knew we were going to take the green tape off, but this is a little too full. <laughs> right? And, in fact, it was so full, my seat was taken. I was sitting over here in the back somewhere in the corner halfway through. I didn't have a seat. And I thought to myself, this is amazing. And I got up and preached. I don't remember anything about the sermon in my dream, but when I got down, I was down here for an invitation, and this young lady came down. And she was married, and she was having some marriage problems. And she said to me, and I prayed with her, and she said, you know, I was praying to the Lord about my marriage, and I realized I wasn't saved. She said, today I'm saved. That's what she told me. And I, was, I said, well, that's amazing. So I turned it around after the song. I announced to the congregation this woman was saved. And the whole place was filled, and they clapped and cheered. That is the kind of thing the Lord wants us to be about at First Baptist Church.
That's the kind of thing God is calling us to, do, to be, right? There's some people that only you can reach, that God has put in your life, and you never know what opportunity it'll be. You never know who you'll bump into. You'll never know when you'll have it, but it takes consistency, and it takes courage, and sometimes boldness for people to step over from death into life. Heavenly Fathers, we close our time together today. We thank you for how your Holy Spirit leads us. And Lord, it's great for us to plan how we'll be on mission, and we need to. Sometimes those divine appointments happen when we least expect it. Let us be faithful when they happen. Lord, we thank you that you give us the words to say. We don't have to worry about what we're going to say. We don't have to worry about how eloquently we explain the gospel or how beautifully we represent you, what you did for us on the cross. You've chosen for your people to be missionaries to the world, to our city and our community. And Lord, your word tells us that you give us the words to say. So let's trust you for those opportunities, Lord, like Nehemiah did. And let us trust you even when we don't know the outcome. And one day, at some point in the history of this church, from now on, I know for a fact, there will be someone who comes down and says, today I'm saved. And we hope to see that play out over and over and over again as you call people to your kingdom. There's one in here today that's never placed their faith in Jesus before. They never turned from their sins and, and been forgiven and been made right with God through the blood of Jesus Christ so they would make that decision today. Father, help us be where you've called us to be. Let us plant, let us bloom where you've planted us. And let's never forget the opportunities you've given us, Lord. Let's be found faithful. Jesus, we ask these things in your name. Amen.